Good evening, everybody. Parshas Vayechi. Time to make a siyum. Last parsha in Bereshis. Topic this evening is like never before. And I'd like to explore probably the most powerful way of connecting with another human being. We all need to express love. We all need to express affection. We need to receive it. And one of the most effective ways of doing that is through the, the power of touch. Touch is one of the most profound gifts that we have, the gift of physical contact. And I think because it's so powerful, it has this very unique ability to enhance connections. But at the same time, it could be very dangerous if it's inappropriate touch, the wrong place, the wrong time, or the wrong person. So I'd like to explore the power of touch. Start off with an interesting contradiction. The, uh, the Rambam famously has his eight levels of giving tzedakah. And he has a countdown going from the, the highest, most noble way of giving tzedakah to, uh, to the most basic, bare-bones way of giving tzedakah. The Rambam says the highest, most elevated way of giving charity, Mala gedola she'ein l'mala mimena, ze machzik beyad Yisrael, shemach, being able to give strength to your fellow Jew who is now down, v'nosein lo matano halva, o'osi moshutvis, and you give him either a gift or a loan, or you join together in a partnership with him, o'mam lo melacha, or you find him a job, k'day l'chazek es yado, to strengthen him and bring him to the point where he no longer needs to ask for help. So this is the classic idea of teaching a man how to fish. That's the highest level of tzedakah. The second highest level, writes the Rambam, Pachos Mizeh, one who gives tzedakah to poor people, Velo Yoda Laminasan, where you don't know to whom you're giving, and the person who's receiving doesn't know who gave it to him. That's considered doing something totally with sincerity, doing a mitzvah, I don't know who's getting it, he doesn't know who's receiving it. That's the second to highest way of giving tzedakah. Yet we find in the Gemara, the Gemara in Shabbos tells us an interesting idea, if you give a present to your friend, you have to make sure that he knows it came from you. And the Gemara quotes a statement, that Hashem said to Moshe, I have a wonderful present that I want to give to you and to Klai Yisrael. Please inform them, let them know that I'm giving the present of... Shabbos. Shabbos, that's Hashem's wonderful present. And from here we derive, Amr Rabbi Gamliel, Hanosein past Latinok, if you're giving bread to a child, you have to make sure to tell his mother. The kid walks home with a big loaf of bread. Where'd you get that from? I don't know, some guy gave it to me. 
you would probably throw in the garbage. <laughs> but the Gemara is telling us that if you give a present to somebody, they have to know, the recipient has to be fully aware of who gave him the gift. So it sounds like somewhat of a contradiction. The Rambam is telling us the second highest level of tzedakah is, I don't know who I'm giving it to, you don't know who you're getting it from. Yet the Gemara is telling us, when you give a present, make sure they know it's coming from you. So the distinction seems to be tzedakah versus matana, giving charity versus giving a present. When I'm giving charity to somebody, so he or she might feel somewhat humiliated, I don't want to have to be taking from other people. It's a busha, it's embarrassing, and therefore, I don't know who I'm giving it to, you don't know who's giving it to you, that's the highest level. When it comes to a matana, when it comes to a present, there, I'm not doing it because you need it. I'm not being mechazek you, I'm not strengthening you because you're down and out. The matana, the gift, is an expression of my love. So if you're going to do something that's expressing love, the Gemara is telling us, go all the way. Let them know this is coming from me because I love you. And what's interesting from this Gemara, it doesn't make any distinction. It doesn't say that if it's your child or if it's your spouse, or somebody that knows that you love them, then there's no need to tell them you gave them the gift. You could just plant it in there without them knowing. It makes no distinction. So it sounds like from this Gemara, even if we think they know that we love them, the more we can do to let them know, not just in words, but to show them, to demonstrate our love for them, the more we have to do. So we see from this Gemara a major insight into human nature. No matter how secure we are in a relationship, we always need to hear that my spouse, my father, my mother, my child, I'm loved, I'm appreciated. And if I don't hear that enough, I tend not to believe it. Is there such a thing as hearing it too much? Is there such a thing as saying, I love you too much? So the answer, I think, is it depends. Too many uh, meaningless I love you's probably go, don't go that far. It's hard to imagine the damage it does, but it's no different than saying good morning or good evening. I love you. Take care. Hope all is well. However, if you're able to express ava, to, to verbalize your love for somebody that you really care for in a way where it's actually meaningful... I'm not just going through the routine of saying good morning and before I walk out the door, love you, I'll see you later. But you're able to actually point out something that you really appreciate. So those types of things are priceless. And the Gemara is telling us, the more we can do that for somebody that we love, the merrier. The more the merrier. People have this tendency to believe, I'm not fully loved, I'm not fully appreciated, therefore make sure people know that you love them. One of the most effective ways of doing this is through the power of touch. There's an article in the New York Times just a few weeks ago. A uh, man in his 40s, he speaks about one of the last encounters he had with his father. He writes, I had thought about reaching for my father's hand for weeks as he would visit him in the nursing home. He was slowly dying in a nursing home and no one who visited him, from my mother, his wife of 42 years, 
to my three siblings held his hand. How do you reach for something that for so many decades hinted at violence and worse, dismissal? I finally did it. I touched my father's hand, which I hadn't held since I was a young boy. His curled fingers opened, unhinging some long sealed door within me, and then lightly closed around mine. Before I left, I did something else none of the males in my family had ever done before. I leaned close to my father's ear and I whispered, I love you. Since then, I have learned that many middle-aged American men share this discomfort with reaching for another man's hand. But experts say that touching contributes to greater well-being. It should be great news that something free, widely available, and lacking in harmful side effects is so good for us, but it gets ignored in a touch-averse culture like ours. We live in a touch-averse culture, and I think recently, if you're following the news at all, we're touch-averse probably for a good reason, because people abuse power, and people touch in the wrong settings. But at least what he's sharing here is his own story, that touching his father's hand, first time in decades, was able to open a door within him that has been, been closed for decades. Now what exactly are the health benefits of touch? What can it do for us? So back in 2016, there's an article in the U.S. News and World Report, a hug a day just might keep the doctor away. Besides helping you feel close and connected to people you care about, it turns out that hugs can bring a host of health benefits to your body and mind. There's an amazing study in 2015 involving 404 healthy adults and researchers examined the effects of perceived social support and the receiving of hugs in fighting off the common cold. What they calculated was that those who felt more secure and more embraced by community or family, they were able to fight off the common cold better than people who were more isolated or more lonely. And they explain that 32% of this benefit of feeling secure and support from those around them was based on the hugs they received. 32% of feeling supported is not just I'm part of something or I'm connected with something, but it's the fact that you're hugging me that gives me the power, that gives me the strength to be more healthy. Some experts attribute the stress reduction and the health-related benefits of hugging to the release of oxytocin, which is called the bonding hormone, because it promotes attachment in relationships. So there's definitely something physical. When you hug me, and according to some studies it has to be 20 seconds, but a long bear hug could actually bring on these hormones that are creating real friendships and giving me more strength and vitality and even improving my immune system. I, uh, I shared this piece during Simchas Torah, so those who were there, I apologize. But I think it's uh, fundamental in, in this, this whole discussion of human touch. Rabbi Isaac Sher was the son-in-law of the altar of Slobodka. We've spoken about the altar of Slobodka many times, many stories about him and the yeshiva. So Rabbi Isaac Sher was his great son-in-law, and he has a piece where he discusses the right way to dance. How do you dance? 
Says Rav Isaac Sher, this is source number five. Yesh lahosef alzeh, babir sod harikud. I want to explain to you the secret of dancing that we do on, on Simchas Torah. We have the custom that goes back centuries that we sing and we dance and we say praises to the Torah. And we have a custom going back to the times of the Arizal and the Vilnagon. The Inyano, what's the whole idea behind dancing? Because when you're dancing and you're each holding each other's hand, and you're going around in circles around the bima. Even though you're not holding on to a Sefer Torah, I'm holding on to my friend. Just dancing together, feeling that brotherhood, feeling that camaraderie, feeling that unity, that's a dover niskav mo'od. That's transcendence. Ki ein zestam hiluch socher socher. It's not just running around in circles. It's not just dancing. Elazehu kiyum b'poel shel ha-mitzvah ha This is actually the fulfillment of the great mitzvah of loving our fellow as ourself. By holding hands. Ki zesha onu ochzim ish b'yad ochiv. It's a wonderful and powerful expression of how much I love you. That's why we mentioned that when we dance Friday night, we don't have our hands on each other's backs, walking around or dancing around the room, but the goal is to actually be holding hands. It's an expression of Ava. It's showing real affection. Now when it comes to children, I'm sure many of us are familiar with some of the research Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, in his wonderful book, To Kindle a Soul, he has a whole chapter on being attentive and also being affectionate with children. I want to just explain briefly the distinction, the definition between being attentive versus showing affection. Being attentive is keeping your eyes open and caring for the child's needs. Supporting them, always being there for them, taking care of them. Uh, There was an interesting study, they looked at little boys in New Jersey, one years old, and they were trying to assess their level of attachment with their parents. And they found, following these children for years to come, that those who had a strong attachment with their parents when they were little babies, so the 6 to 8% of them had real psychological issues later on in life. Those boys that had a very limited attachment with their parents, it was more in the realm of 40 to 45 percent who had real severe psychological issues. So attachment is formed by being attentive, by being there for our children. Now some people will say, if I'm always there, I'm always standing behind his shoulder looking out for him, maybe that somehow takes away independence, but the contrary is true. The more I feel that my father or my mother is there for me, the more I have the ability to venture out on my own and to become truly independent. So that's being attentive. Affection, though, is much more than looking out for their needs. It's expressing your love for them. That's affection. And there's an amazing study done by Dr. Mary Answorth. She's a professor of child development at the University of Toronto. I see Jonathan shaking his head. Mary Answorth, of course. 
And there's an interesting study with Ugandan mothers. She found out that Ugandan mothers tend to be more attentive and responsive to their children than many American mothers. For some reason, part of the culture, they're on top of their kids, always looking out, what do they need, what do they want, what can I give them? And she saw, therefore, the levels of attachment she found in Ugandan society, it was higher than you would find in many places in America. However, the striking thing was that Ugandan mothers do not try to elicit hugging or kissing. And the Ugandan babies very rarely manifest any behavior pattern even closely resembling affection. So they're there for their children, but there's no focus on hugging, kissing, patting on the back, no physical affection. And she saw that played out through years, that Ugandan children, once they get to be older, who are deprived of affection when they were little babies, in turn, they treat each other with total indifference. They're not cruel, they're not mean, but there's a sense of apathy. You know, I think the best muscle, the best analogy would be, you think of the sun and the moon. We know the, the moon doesn't have any source of light by itself. It's all the reflection from the sun. So when the, when the sun is shining bright on the moon, and we see the full moon, we, 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 we could light up the entire sky with that radiance. When the sun is, let's say there's an eclipse, so there could be total darkness. To have children that are really compassionate, who are affectionate to other children, we have to be the sun. We have to show them what that means. If we don't treat them like that, obviously we can't assume they're going to turn out like that. That brings us to the Parsha. Parsha, we have an amazing episode where Yaakov is on his deathbed, and before he gives the brachos to all of his children, he first is there with Yosef and Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandchildren. The Pasuk tells us, Yisrael kovdu mizokin. His eyes were heavy from age. Lo yucho liros, and he could no longer see. So the Yagesh Yosef brought his grandchildren to him, and Yaakov kissed them and he hugged them. So at first glance, it sounds somewhat trivial. It makes sense. Grandfather's in his deathbed. He wants to give a hug and a kiss before he gives a bracha. Comes along the Svorno, and the Svorno says he wasn't just hugging them and kissing them because he was their grandfather. He had something very particular in mind. Says the Svorno, V'yishak lehem v'yechabek lehem, tidbak nafsho bahem. Yaakov was hugging and kissing his grandchildren in order to create a devekis, in order to create a connection, a spiritual connection, in order that his bracha should be bestowed upon them. How does a bracha work? How do I bless you? How do I somehow transfer the bracha from me to you? Well, the answer is, there has to be devekis hanefesh. There has to be this connection of the souls. Yaakov understood the science of brachos. So how do we create more of a devekis hanefesh? Obviously, I love them and they love me. We do have a closeness, but to take that closeness and to enhance it and to make it really devekis, I need to hug them and kiss them. Only then I could give the bracha in a way 
well, it would truly take effect on my grandchildren. I think with this background, we gain a little bit of a glimpse into the question that many people ask, who uh, outside of the religious world, the whole dating and marriage scene is somewhat strange. It's far from the secular society. Now, it's not that far from secular society 60 years ago, but it's the polar extreme of what we see in the outside world today. The uh, National Marriage Project estimated that fewer than 500,000 unmarried couples were living together in the U.S. in the early 1960s. Cohabitation has increased by nearly 900% over the last 50 years. And as of 2012, two-thirds of couples married shared a home together for at least two years before they waltzed down the aisle. I had a conversation this past week with Mr. Markman talking about how things have changed so radically. And it hasn't been that long in the scheme of things, in the history of humanity. But the, the norm, 900% difference from the 1960s. Now the idea of not living together with somebody before marriage is unheard of. And we see based on obviously how wonderful marriages are today with the decline in divorce and uh, infidelity that clearly the system's working. But maybe it's not. Can touch bring on emotion even if I don't really feel it that much? Right, the case of Yaakov is a case where obviously he loved his grandchildren and therefore by hugging and kissing them, he was only enhancing that which was already there. But let's say I don't like you that much. Can touch change the way I feel about you? Can it change my whole perception of our relationship? And this takes us to perhaps the most historic hug of history. What was the most historic hug? Yaakov and Esau. All of the, the preparation and the anxiety that Yaakov was going through, knowing full well that his brother was fully intent on destroying him. And he tried so many different things. He tried tefillah, davening with all of his heart, and he sent presents, and he divided his family. And none of that seems to work. Esav is still pursuing him with full force. And the Torah tells us, V'yorat Esav likroso, Esav ran to greet him, Vayachab Kehu, and they hugged the Yipol al Tzavarov, and he fell on his neck, Vayishakehu, and they kissed, or he kissed him, the Yivku, and they wept. So what's going on over here? Esav's pursuing Yaakov, I want to kill you, you stole everything that belongs to me, all of the future that really I'm deserving of, now you have, based on the fact that you're deceitful. And then he runs to him, they hug, he falls on his neck, he kisses him, and they cry together. So there's a famous Rashi here pointing out, we know there are dots above the word, Vayishakehu. Vayishakehu literally means, and he kissed him. But dots are always telling us, there's more here than meets the eye. 
And if anything, usually the nekudos, the dots on top of the word, are there to inform us it's the exact opposite of what it seems to be saying. So Rashi comes along and he quotes the famous machlokas, the famous debate. Well, so what exactly is the opposite? Everyone agrees it's the opposite of what it's saying, but what is it saying? What's the simple understanding? Do we assume that Esav was kissing him with sincerity, and the dots are revealing to us that really it wasn't genuine? Or is it the opposite? Do we assume that Esav was kissing him, and he didn't really mean it, and the dots are telling us he really did mean it? Those are two, two understandings. It's not clear. In one of those understandings, Rashi quotes Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, the great author of the Zohar. Reb Shimon Bar Yochai says, Halachahi, we have a, a principle, Be'adua she'esav sonei liyakov. We know that Esav hates Yaakov. That's how humanity works. And therefore, the Pashib shot, the simple understanding of that word is, he was kissing him and he didn't really mean it. But Esav's rachamim, his compassion, welled up inside of him for that moment, and he kissed him with all of his heart. So says Hashem Bar Yochai, really Esav hates Yaakov. That's his whole mahus, his essence is, I hate you. However, there was something about that moment that, 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 that was stoking the coals and the fire of compassion within the Nisham of Esav, to bring him to the point where when he was kissing him, the kiss was genuine. The kiss was real. But he never explains what was it about that encounter that got him to kiss Yaakov with all of his heart. What was it? Comes along the Nachlas Yaakov, one of the great commentaries on Rashi, famous author of the Nesivas, and the Nachlas Yaakov says, do you know what it was? Do you know what melted away all of that, that hatred from Esau? It was the hug. And you read it carefully, it fits in beautifully. Kehu, he hugged him, and when he went in for the hug, he didn't really mean it. He was still intent on killing him. But as he was hugging him, then the hatred and the disdain and the resentment melted away to the fact that now I could kiss my brother Bocholibo with all of his heart. That was the transformation of Esau. It was all through the power of a hug. On one hand, this is absolutely beautiful. I, I heard a story recently from Dr. Berman, and Dr. Berman was there. Dr. Berman has the best stories on the planet, and he has a lot of good Karlbach stories. So he said he was, I forget where it was, maybe in Pittsburgh, and they were dancing outside with Shlomo Karlbach. Um, and there is this, this non-Jewish guy who was... Uh, yelling at Karabach, anti-Semitic slurs, making fun of him. Karabach looks at him and he shouts, I love you, my brother! And the guy was kind of taken aback. He wasn't expecting that. Says Dr. Berman, five seconds later, Karabach goes out a little circle. He grabs this fellow, and trust me, by his description of who this guy looked like, he didn't really like fit the scene. 
Karabach grabs the guy, brings him to the circle, and they start dancing together, Berekida, to the point where he was somewhat sold on it. He was no longer as, uh, as, uh, as mean as he was before. So this is an amazing Rashi, it's an amazing Nachlas Yaakov, it's the power of a hug. And it's true within relationships, and it's true with children. So often we're having a back and forth with the child, or it's a power struggle. Sometimes if you go for the hug, that could actually be adding fuel to the fire. You have to know your kid, you have to know the situation. But sometimes that's what they need. They don't know they need that, nor do you want to touch them right now, because you're so disgusted by their behavior. But sometimes it's just that hug, and the oxytocin, and whatever else it is, physiologically, that could change the whole dynamic, that could change the moment. But I think you also see an amazing thing from this Rashi. You see that even if you don't like somebody, because touch is so powerful, but also shun that moment, I could love you. Even if you're not the right person for me, even if there's not a commitment right now, even if I don't really feel we have a future together, but now that we're touching and we have this level of relationship, so it sounds clear from Rashi, that has the ability to blind me. In the case of Yaakov and Esav, it made so much sense. He was melting before Yaakov. Yaakov was, was a godol. He, he was an amazing giant of a person. But it would seem that this same human nature would apply to somebody who's not a godol. But if I'm hugging you, if there's a physical interaction, that could create a closeness and a connection that I don't want to exist because then it blinds me from going forward. Do I really have something with you? Is this relationship something that, that could last, something that's meaningful, or am I just feeling this way because we have been touching? People will argue against the, the religious way of doing things. Okay, listen, I, I get the basic ideas behind it, and it kind of makes sense. I would never follow that lifestyle, but I kind of hear where you're coming from. But why so extreme? You can't shake her hand? Come on, that's ridiculous. Do you think all men are pigs? Yes. <laughs> no! But we do believe that human beings are human beings. And the idea of having guidelines and the, the, the idea of having a separation and the idea of having separate schools, it's not because we feel men are pigs, it's because we understand the neshama, we understand ambition, we understand passion, and we understand what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us in this world, and how to channel those feelings. So to put ourselves into an environment where, where we're challenging ourselves, and likely we'll make decisions that will create connections that are not real connections, but we won't have the clarity of mind to realize that because now there's a touch here and the hug melts away, the seichel, I don't have much of a chance. So perhaps from the outside world looking in, it seems silly and restrictive and limiting, but I think it's clear from Rashi, if you don't have these restrictions, you will ultimately get into a relationship that might not be the best thing for you. And it will definitely, beyond the shadow of a doubt, cheapen your real relationship in the future. The beauty and the tahara and the purity, the kedusha that can exist and does exist, when you have two people coming from a lifestyle where we weren't involved with these things beforehand, and now we can come together and create a real devekis hanefesh, a real connection of the soul, there's nothing like that in the world. And a part of the interesting thing when you have these conversations with people, 
is you ask them, forget about me. Forget about what the Torah says or doesn't say. What would you say? What, what makes the most sense to you? If you had to have a cutoff point with uh, what seems appropriate and okay to uh, you know, different interactions between the opposite gender, what would your cutoff point be? And inevitably, everyone will always say the exact same thing. You know what that is? They'll say whatever secular society happens to be doing right now. So you think about that for a moment. You think about how silly that is. You're telling me that if you were living in the 1950s, then you would give me an entirely different answer regarding what's appropriate, what kind of contact or what kind of interactions are okay for the opposite gender. But now that you happen to live in America in 2017, you feel this much is okay and only that much isn't? The whole thing is silly. The Torah gives us clear guidelines. And we see from this Rashi and this Nachlas Yaakov, once there is a real relationship through the power of touch, that can melt away the seichel. So we have to be super careful. There's an amazing person that I've learned about in the last few months. Rabbi Yitzhi Horwitz. And I highly recommend, if you don't know much about him, to look him up, to Google him. He and his wife are shluchim through Chabad, somewhere in California. I'm forgetting offhand. They've been there for 15 years. And 2013, he was diagnosed with ALS. And the, the decline has been so severe to the point where right now he's 95% paralyzed. He can't move anything in his body. He can't speak. However, the way he communicates is through his eyes. He has a computer screen, and he could look at a letter on the screen. It types the letter and forms a word and forms sentences. His entire Thursday is taken up with him writing a blog, something special on the Parsha. So the little bit that I've learned about him and his Rebbitzin and the children it's absolutely mind-boggling, the, the level of, of acceptance that, that you could have in a situation like this. So there was one blog, one Devar Torah that Rabbi Horwitz gave. I want to share with you just a couple of lines of what he said. This is going back now a few years, 2015. It is now more than two years since my arms and lips stopped working. I ache to hug and kiss my children. I ache to speak to them and tell them how much I love them and how proud I am of them. No more than, now more than ever, I see the value of these things. Please do not take your loved ones for granted. Grab the opportunity to develop your connections. Keep adding wood to your fires. Don't wait for the right moment. Do it now. Coming from anybody else, we would say, that's a nice thought. Thank you, Rabbi. Coming from Rabbi Horowitz, that could be a life-changing thought if we actually take these words and try to, try to bring them home. 2008 was Operation Cast Lead. The first IDF soldier to die was Staff Sergeant Devere Emanuelov passed away. He was 22 years old. I just have an article here that I photocopied. 
He was a graduate of the Nativot Jewish Seminary. He lived in Gavat Zev, just northwest of Jerusalem. His mother, Delia, arrived home to meet IDF casualties officers waiting for her with the worst news possible, and she found out that her child died. Now, there was a story circulating about a year or so after this where the mother was officially outside of, of Shiva and she was done with the mourning and her daughter wanted to go to a concert. A particular guy, Mayor Banai, was playing and uh, she had no interest in going. She wasn't in the mood for doing anything at that point in her life. But her daughter convinced her to go and she went along with her. She's sitting there in the bleachers, trying to enjoy it as much as she could, and she feels someone touch her shoulder. And again, another little tap. She assumes at first it's just the crowd and people shuffling around, but some, something keeps on tapping her. She turns around, and she sees this little cute kid, little handsome boy with blonde hair and blue eyes. So she herself was a kindergarten teacher by profession. So Delia said to the boy, would you like to, to sit down next to me? In the meantime, the boy's father and mother are up a couple of seats, and his father calls over to him, Eshel, why don't you come back here and, and sit down next to me and Devere? So Delia turned around, and she saw the father holding a little baby. Excuse me, what's your child's name? This is Eshel, and this is Devere. How old is Devere? He's six months. Forgive me for asking, but was he born after Castlet or before? So the father said he was born after. Please forgive me for, for pushing. Can I ask, how did you name him Devere? It's not, not a common name. So Benny, the father, explained to her that the first soldier killed in Castlet, his name was Devere. And his story touched us, so my wife and I decided to name our son after that first heroic soldier. At that point, almost unable to speak, Delia pauses and she says, I'm Devere's mother. Shiri, is the wife of Benny, the, the, the baby's mother, she overhears what's happening and she says, that can't be. No, it's true. Well, what's your last name? Emanuelov, where do you live? Gvatzev. Shiri says, it's really you, I can't believe it. They embrace, never met before. And Shiri says to Delia, you should know, I wanted to invite you to the bris. We had in mind to call you, but there's a long story here. When I was 34 weeks or so, they found something on the sonogram the ultrasound, and they thought that it could be potentially very serious. I wasn't so phased at the beginning, because they always say things like that, oh, it could be something, and it never is. However, in this case, the doctors really got us scared. So, I was waiting, and um, only time would tell if my child would be okay. I would turn on the news, and I saw that a soldier was killed, the first soldier, and his name was Devere. And I saw a picture of his smile, and he just looked so angelic. And hearing his bravery, when Benny came home, I asked my husband, I said, I think we should name our son Devere. Why? 
She told him the story. Benny being a good husband, okay. And we did. And here's the amazing line that I think more so than the miracle of the story. And there's a lot to take in with, with this, just how everything worked out, her going to the concert and being there at the same time and sitting in the same area and, and meeting the child that was named after her own. Shiri says to Dalia, please give Devir a hug. This hug, I think, is coming from your Devir. And she embraced the baby. The, the ability to hug anybody that we love, the ability to have physical affection is so incredibly powerful to the point where it's dangerous if it's the wrong person in the, in the wrong time. However, if it's the right person in the right time and we're trying to express love and for sure when it comes to children where they're, they're developing their whole identity and their sense of security, the more we could pour on the love, the better but it's not limited to children. With our friends, with our workers, to give a high five, to give a pat on the back, there's so many unspoken words in one pat on the back. Rev. Isaac Sher was telling us, when you dance in a circle, don't do so with your hand on someone's back. Hold his hand. It's a higher level of expression of ava. That's a kiyum, that's a fulfillment of the mitzvah, of loving your fellow as you love yourself. There are many different languages of love, but we can never neglect the physical touch. I'll end with this. I've had people tell me, when discussing different relationships or struggles, Rabbi, it's just not me. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not the touchy-feely type. So what do you respond back to that? The answer is the same answer you would give to somebody who says, Rabbi, the whole tefillin thing, I really, I, I know it's a mitzvah so I understand that, but it's just not me, the wrapping of cowhide on my arm, I can't relate to it. Okay, listen, so you don't have to do it. No, you have to do it, there's a mitzvah deraisa to do it. So if I'm not that kind of guy, the answer is, okay, you gotta push. I don't enjoy waking up at five something in the morning. I'm not a morning person, but that's part of what we do. So if we're not that guy, we're not that person, we have to make ourselves that person because our children need it, our spouse needs it, but perhaps more than anything, we need it. Yaakov wasn't kissing and hugging Ephraim and Menashe just because he felt it was good for them. It was in order that his own neshama should be dovic to them. I need to connect through you through the power of touch. Have a wonderful evening.